In today's episode, we're going to be talking about what should you be looking for in a pastor. So whether you are looking for a new church and trying to decide if a certain pastor is the right pastor for you at this church, or maybe you have some questions about your current pastor and are asking yourself, is he biblically qualified to even be a pastor? We'll answer all that and more on today's episode of I Believe, Now What? Hello, everybody. My name's Tim Perko, and you're listening to I Believe, Now What? What's going on, everybody? I hope y'all having a wonderful one out there. If this is your first time listening, I Believe, Now What? is a podcast that is just directed towards making theology, doctrine, pretty much everything Bible-based, just easily accessible and understandable for that everyday person. We do Bible studies, topical studies. We talk about current events and how they relate to the Christian walk of life. And you're jumping in on episode two of a multi-episode series in which we're talking about the church, pretty much what to look for in a church. The very first episode, we talked about church discipline in this series. Now we're going to go over, if you heard the intro, obviously, what to look for in a pastor. And I debated on how I wanted to do this. Should I do what not to look for, what to look for? I really think at the end of the day, you should look at the qualities that the Bible says a good pastor should have. And this is this is not just about a pastor, too. This is for any type of leader in the church, whether it would be an elder or a bishop or a, the, the teaching pastor. Every single one of those positions that we just named is actually used pretty much interchangeably in the Bible. An elder, a pastor, a bishop, they're all the same thing and referring to the same thing. And the qualities that we go over here today are the same qualities that should be found in all of those, not just your pastor. But with that being said, we're going to go ahead and dig into 1 Timothy chapter 3. We see such great detail. There's some parallel passages in Titus, and I highly suggest you go over there and read it when you get the chance to. But for today's episode, we're diving into 1 Timothy chapter 3, where it talks about the qualifications of a pastor. 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 1, reads like this. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, once again, just to remind you, overseer is a pastor, a bishop, an elder, any leadership position in that church where they hold authority. Uh, start over again. If it, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work that he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation occurred, incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil." All right, with all that being said, this is what the Apostle Paul, to give you a little bit of context, was writing to Timothy on. Uh, he left Timothy, essentially, at the church in Ephesus. He told, wanted him there to go ahead and kind of oversee what was going on in that church because some messed up stuff was going on. If you read through all of Timothy, you can get a pretty good idea of what was happening inside that church and why he had to leave Timothy there to pretty much oversee it. And this is Paul's letter to Timothy giving him instructions. I just want to say again, it is my hope that through this message that you can determine one 
pretty much what to look for in a pastor if you're looking for a new church to go to, or two, is your pastor actually biblically qualified by what the Bible says? Maybe you have some questions out there. Now, what I don't want you to do is try to nitpick and find every little thing. You know, It's got to be the right spirit. I don't want people just up and leaving their church because of what I'm saying here. But what I want you to do is examine your pastor. Maybe you've had this laid on your heart. And honestly, see, are they holding up to the truth? And if they're not, then maybe this is a subject you need to bring to your elders or maybe the pastor, depending on what type of church you're in. So some people might ask themselves, why is this such an important topic today? Well, number one, a bad pastor or an unqualified, uncalled pastor that pretty much assumes a leadership position in that church could end up turning that entire church upside down. I mean, you don't need to go any further than go on YouTube and look at all the scandals that you see out there in churches that just ruin the church's name. A pastor gets into a sex scandal, pastor cheats on his wife, pastor's doing drugs, pastor's stealing money from the offering. A lot of these things we just named off happened over in uh, Hillsong Church. And, and, and that's just the example I'm looking at. And I don't say that to be uncharitable. I say that out of straight concern. Why are all these issues happening in some churches? Well, bottom line up front, it's because they're putting people in leadership positions that are not qualified for it. And like I said, this will end up teaching very bad theology to people and they could be lost and led astray because of that. So it's very important that us as the congregation knows what to look for inside a pastor. And just to let you know, you have every single right as someone in a congregation to question whether or not your pastor is biblically qualified. It's okay. And if you see something out, see something wrong there, you have every right to call that out. Once again, you do that in love, and you can refer back to a few episodes ago when we talked about church discipline and how to properly go about that. But you do it, like I said, with the main concern out of love and to bring that person back into repentance, even if it means that they have to step down from the ministry and not enter it again. You need look only to the Bible to see how relevant this is and how important this is. In this very same letter that Paul wrote to Timothy in chapter 5, verse 22, he told Timothy, do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily. What does that mean? It means don't ordain someone uh, to be a pastor just because they're the convenient choice or maybe you have a, a gut feeling. If you go back to the book of Acts, before they decided on elders for the church, they did it after much prayer and much fasting. It wasn't just a willy-nilly decision or, oh, uh, you know what, we, we, we're not finding the perfect person for the job, but this guy's here and available. He'll do it. Let's just go ahead and take him in. We You can't get desperate with this stuff. This is something that must be done in prayer and fasting. It's very important. Just like we said, do not lay hands on or do not ordain a new pastor too hastily. Before we keep going, I do want to apologize. we got a tropical depression outside here, and you might be able to hear the rain a little bit in the audio, and I hope not. I try to tweak that up for you all, but let's go ahead and continue on. So before we break down verse by verse our main passage, I really quickly I want to point out just five topics that seem to pop out of me so that way you can keep this in the back of your mind that aren't specifically addressed here. Uh, it's just studies that you find throughout the Bible. And this is very important to keep in mind before we start going over this text. Number one, a pastor, elder, bishop, overseer, shepherd, however you want to label it, in our Bibles, they all refer to the same thing. I said that earlier. I just want to make that very clear. They are used consistently, interchangeably. Point number two, the church should never, ever be ran by a single pastor. This is a common trend that I do see a lot today. And at the end of the day, it's just not biblical. 
Every single time in the Bible when you see the apostles writing a letter to a congregation or a church, it's always given specifically to the elders. It's always given to the eldership, plural, of that church, not one single person. Some might argue, well, what about Timothy or what about Titus? Well, they weren't part of that church. They were specifically meant to just overwatch that church and help them out. They're almost like church planters or church uh, organizers, I guess you could say in a way, but they weren't part of that specific church in that permanent membership, if you will. The reason why a single pastor is so dangerous, not just because it's not really found anywhere in the Bible, but it's because there's no accountability there. When you are the be-all, say-all, when one person is that be-all, say-all inside that church, the grounds for corruption can really creep in because there's no one there to hold them accountable. Now, I've ran across pastors like this before, and they say, oh, well, this pastor over in this other church that's, you know, so far away, they they disciple me and they, you know, let me know. It, that's not really feasible. You need somebody in your church keeping you accountable that sees you on a pretty much day-to-day -day basis. That is why the church should be ran by a group of elders. You actually see this in the Bible. The book of Acts talks about this. Actually, in Timothy, it talks about it. Sorry, uh, that the elders are to govern the church. It's not supposed to be a one single person running the show. The elders, the leaders of that church, and that includes the pastor, govern the church. Now, on the flip side of that, the opposite is also true. You never want a church where the congregation itself is running that church. I've seen some churches, well, not seen personally, but heard of some churches that have the entire congregation in a voting membership and they control everything. They control who gets to be an elder, who gets to be a leader, what they do. I've even seen arguments break out about the colors of carpets. Uh, this is what happens with a voting membership. And I'm not trying to discourage voting memberships. I think they are good and they have a place. But when it comes to the electing of leaders, the memberships, the congregation should have absolutely nothing to do with that. Sheep begot sheep. Elders should be the ones ordaining and finding and discipling other elders for the church, whether they stay in that church or they go elsewhere. That's kind of it's kind of the same analogy that I would use in the army, me as a sergeant, if I were to just let my privates do whatever they want and pick whatever they want, there would be nothing that ever got done. Yeah, you might have the one or two responsible dudes, but at the end of the day, there's a lot of work that won't get done and I'm probably going to get into a lot of trouble. So, it's the same way with a church. You don't want the members running every single aspect of the church, especially when it comes to the leadership role. You're just asking for trouble. I mean, all you got to look at what's going on with David Platt's church right now. You know, the guy, I don't know the inner workings of it, so I won't comment on it, but he's a pretty solid pastor. I've read some of his books. I've heard some of his message. Pretty solid dude. His church is being ripped apart right now because his church members do have a say in who is elected to eldership, and their church is pretty much almost like in a 50-50 split right now, fighting over who should be an elder and who shouldn't. Like I said, I'm not going to comment too much on it because I'm not very privy to the entire situation, but regardless, that's a problem that could have been avoided if you just did not have members of the church voting on eldership. It's just not something we see in the Bible, period.
Also, mind you, I do realize that sometimes I am saying some stuff that maybe you don't agree with and could be controversial, especially when talking about this church stuff. So by all means, if you have a question, if you have a gripe, a complaint, whatever it may be, hit me up on social media. You can find me on Twitter at I Believe Now What. You can find me on Instagram, on Facebook. And we do actually have an email address now, so you can write me an email on uh, ibnwpodcast at gmail.com. If you have any questions, gripes, complaints, whatever the case may be, because like I said, and also I am not somebody who is ever above correction. If there is something that I have ever said that has been wrong, by all means, please point it out to me in scripture, point it out to me in love, and I will go back and look at that and restudy and reevaluate and address that. Uh, I, I am not above correction and nobody, nobody really, even in leadership should be above any type of correction. All right, point number three to keep in context. Do not hold that pastor accountable to sins committed prior to conversion. So in other words, if they lived a pretty nasty life before they were a Christian, but then came to Christianity, they felt called to the ministry, they put in the work, they put in the effort, you know, they went to school, not saying school is 100% mandatory, don't get me wrong, but it just shows a level of dedication. They've done the work, the years have gone by. And they're ready to step into that role as a leader, an elder, a pastor, whatever the case may be. You, you as the congregation, you as the person cannot hold those past sins against them. That's not something that Christ does with us. If he were to hold our past sins against us, then there would be no way we would ever go to heaven. But uh, why would it be any different when it comes to a pastor? And I know that's hard to let go for some people, especially in smaller towns. I live in a small town right now where everybody has known each other their entire life and they see somebody who God has changed their life and made them a better person. But then all of a sudden, you know, when it comes time and they want to step up into a leadership role, they're going, oh, no, 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 no. I know how you acted before. (laughs) That's not the way to go about that. Point number four to keep in context, and and this is really one for people who maybe are thinking about entering in the ministry, entering into being a pastor or any type Keep in mind the words of James when he said, not all should teach, should should teach. I got to get my words right. Not all should teach because they are going to be judged harder than those who don't. Uh, Same thing with the book of Hebrews, where it says leaders watch over the souls of those people in their congregation, and they're going to have to give an account to Jesus one day on what they have taught. I know many people that this was me, especially when I was when I very first when I was young and I wanted to enter ministry and I came across these verses and I was like, whoa. I need to study a little bit more. I need to uh, dig in a little bit more because this is this is pretty heavy. You're going to have to give account in front of Jesus for everything you taught. And if you've taught something wrong, I mean, that's not something I want to have to answer for. It's not going to change your salvation, but you are going to have to answer for it. And I don't know what that all entails, but I want to do my studies and be diligent in what I teach and make sure everything that I am teaching is right and lined up with the Word of God so I don't have to find out what happens when you were wrong. And point number five to keep in mind, and I'm just going to touch this topic a little bit because this is really something in today's world. This is an episode maybe for another time to go over this. And there's plenty of other resources that you can look up when it talks to this. But the role, according to the Bible... The role of a pastor, elder, or teacher is specifically for a man. Anyone who holds a leadership position in the church, that role is specifically for a man. This is not sexist as much as the world will try to tell you this is sexist today. Uh, There's so many arguments about culture and all this stuff. And then you talk to people about this and they'll say, well, in those days, you know, women were unlearned, but that doesn't mean anymore. And And in my brain, 
That sounds, you know, well and good. But at the end of the day, the Bible doesn't say that. It doesn't identify, hey, this was a specific message for a specific church at a specific time. In fact, Paul says everything that he teaches, he said this in a letter, everything that he teaches, he teaches in all the churches of the saints. And that includes this passage. And Paul is actually kind enough to go into the reasoning why he does not allow women to teach in his church. Like I said, we're not going to go heavy, heavily into that because it's not, uh, it could be an entire episode on its own, and I'm not trying to go too long here, but just go up a little bit in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and read through there. Essentially, it has everything to do with how God ordained everything. The man is supposed to be the head of the woman. That doesn't make the man better than the woman. It's just separate roles. It's the same reason why Christ is the head of the church, and the church is submissive to Christ. So is man the head of the wife, And the wife is submissive to her husband. Now, this does not mean, I want to be very clear here, this does not mean before all the women leave uh, that women cannot spread the gospel. Women can spread the gospel. Women can evangelize. Women can teach other women, have women's ministry, go on TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, their Facebook posts, whatever they mean, and spread the meaning, the message of the gospel. Talk about scripture. It does not forbid anything about that. In fact, if you go to Titus, it encourages for the older women to teach the younger women or the more well-learned women to teach the newer Christian women. This is very, very key and very good to do. At the end of the day, and this is all I'm going to say on it from now on, is that it's not sexist. If it's sexist, it's only sexist because the world is trying to tell you it is. This is from God's word, and this is, I get it. It's a difficult topic. When I was a young Christian, I used to listen to female pastors. In fact, there were some female pastors that I thought spoke and taught way better than men did. But at the end of the day, we have to follow what the Bible says, not what our feelings say. Like I said, I can go into so much more reasoning, but that's an episode for another time because once again, I I do understand and I get it. It's a sensitive topic today, but I'm not going to apologize for what the Bible clearly says. All right, with keeping all that in mind, let us go over our characteristics of a pastor from our main passage. Now, I personally pulled out 17 characteristics from here. If you were able to pull out more, or maybe you had some questions on stuff, once again, go back, hit us up on social media. I believe now what? We're on pretty much almost every major social media outlet, or you can hit us up on our Gmail, and I'll leave it in the link uh, in our description here of the podcast if you want to go find it again. We're going to get through this decently fast, so no worries for you who uh, don't enjoy the hour and a half long episodes. But characteristic number one, the person, the the pastor that you're looking for, he must desire that role. Uh, Actually, the better word here is aspire that role. In the Greek, this means to reach out and long for it. They're not just sitting around waiting for it. They put in the hard work. And this is really for someone who's maybe thinking about becoming a pastor. You're putting in that hard work. You're doing the Bible studies. You're not sitting around waiting and saying, oh, when I'm, you know, 25, I'm going to go to seminary. No, you're you're actively trying to get that now. You're studying. You're in your word. You want to preach. All these things. That is that aspire. Characteristic number two. That is the word desire, just like aspire, but a little bit different. This is referring to the call, that call that comes down from God in saying that you are called to be a pastor. It is that the best way that I can describe it is it is a just a deep burning inside saying, I need to preach. I need to get out there. You just know you're called of God to preach that. That kind of goes once again for people who are maybe thinking about being a pastor. 
Number three characteristic to look for in your pastor, they must be above reproach. Now, this is a word we don't use too often today, but essentially it means without blame. No one should be able to go to your pastor and call him a hypocrite. He's not practicing what he's preaching or something like that. Now, obviously, there's going to, as a pastor, you're not going to agree with everything your pastor says at all point in times. That doesn't matter. What matters is, is he sinning actively, but yet preaching against the very sins that he's committing on his own? He must be above that. No one should be able to look at him and blame him for sinning or anything like that. Now, that goes into the whole thing. Obviously, we're all sinners. We make mistakes. But there's a much bigger difference between openly living in sin or unrepentantly living in your sin and, two, struggling in your sin. And we've went over that before on this show. Characteristic number four, they must be a husband of one wife. And I'm going to go ahead and change this up a little bit because it's better translated a one woman man in the Greek. And you can pretty much look at any reputable commentary or expositors commentary, and they'll tell you the exact same thing. A one woman man. No, this is not saying that your pastor has to be married. But what it is saying is that your pastor better be dedicated to that woman in his life. Yes, that does mean if they've gotten a divorce as a pastor, then they are no longer qualified to be a pastor anymore. Uh, I, now, it gets into the conversation of what about a biblical divorce. This passage specifically isn't talking about divorce now. That comes in a later topic as we're going to go over it. What this is actually specifically referring to is that your pastor, if he is married, is totally dedicated to his wife and nobody else. He's not running around, cheating, flirting, anything like that. As a pastor, you have to be dedicated to that one person in your life. Characteristic number five, and that is the word temperate. The Greek word refers to without wine, or some would say wineless, alcohol-free. Now, this isn't, I know it's the actual meaning means mindless, but this has a deeper meaning than just alcohol. Alcohol comes later on. We're going to get over that. But this is actually talking about staying vigilant, being sober-minded. As a pastor, your pastor is going to have to be in situations where he needs to be able to be able to react quickly. He needs to be on his guard. And if he has outside influences, whether that be alcohol, whether it be uh, worldly TV shows and movies that he's obsessed with, or whatever the case may be, something that's clouding his judgment, clouding his mind, then they're not qualified to be a pastor. A pastor has to stay vigilant. They have to be temperate. Characteristic number six, and that is the word prudent. This means to be in control. I liken it to the same type of control that a singer has over their vocal cords and where they can hit all those notes perfectly, pitch perfect. As a pastor, I like to say that this means you are disciplined. You don't just willy-nilly go about life. Uh, sadly, many people today think about a, that, that being a pastor is just preaching on Sunday and that's it. But at the end of the day, it's so much more than that. You have counselings, weddings, funerals. You're receiving criticisms from people who didn't like the sermon or the music or whatever the case may be. Uh, you're counselling people, helping them out. 
all while trying to balance your family and home life. Just think about that. That's a lot of stuff that you're doing as a pastor. And as a pastor, you need to be in control. Or here's an even better word. You need to know how to prioritize. It's just like me in the army. I get handed 20 different things on an everyday basis, and I I can't do them all at once. But what I need to do is go through and prioritize what comes first, what comes second, what should I put to the end. That's what a pastor needs to be able to do. How do you prioritize your days? Number seven, you must be respectable. Or in other words, you must be well-ordered and orderly. Now, this is, once again, you don't go back to their old life, but you look at their life as a Christian, and it must not look chaotic. It must not have that chaotic look to it. Now, take that as you will. I could give you examples, but I don't want to just throw things in your mind. But overall, when you see your pastor's life, their life should not look chaotic. Number seven, and that is, oh, we already did number seven. Number eight, that is hospitable. This means to literally love strangers. As a pastor, you are going to be encountering strangers all the time. Uh, Pastor John MacArthur said in his own household, he pastors Grace Community Church out in California. He says in his household, they have this rule where if you leave your room, you must come out fully clothed because you never know who is going to be standing there in your living room at any point in time. This is what a pastor does. You're going to have to open your doors to strangers at times. This is what is expected of a pastor. He's supposed to show love to strangers, whether that be, like I said, opening your door to a stranger, going out of your way, not doing the convenient things all the time. But, and here's another key I want to add in. You don't do it begrudgingly. You do it willingly because you truly have a love for strangers. So characteristic number nine now, they must be able to teach. Now, this may seem like a duh moment, and it is. This is one of two characteristics that I truly believe is a gift from God. It's not something that can be taught to somebody. And the first one being that desire and aspire uh, aspect, really the desire, that call of God in your life. But number nine, being able to teach, I truly believe is a gift. Now, gifts can be developed over time. This is why so many people who are called in the ministry go to Bible college. They go to seminary. They learn how to hone their skills. I liken it to a singer. Uh, Once again, I'll go back to that analogy of a singer. A singer, you know, they sing beautifully. If if they're like me, you know, I'm not born a singer. My voice is horrible when it comes to singing. But a singer is born with a natural ability to sing. And over time, that ability, that skill of singing grows as they go to voice coaches or as they practice singing and they learn to control their vocal cords better. This is what it's talking about when we say able to teach. Yes, it can be groomed and it can be uh, honed in more, but essentially they have to have that ability to be able to teach and plant it in them first before that can happen. I've read so many articles before about people who believed that they were called to be a pastor or an elder or a teacher, whatever the case may be, and only to go to seminary to find out that they did not have the ability to teach whatsoever. Sadly, some of them try to stick it out, and you know what that is if you've ever been under one. Essentially, do you want it for the people who maybe want to be a pastor? How do you know you're able to teach? I think it's very easy. What are the results saying? And what I mean by that is, did your congregation walk away or you in the congregation? If maybe you're wondering, is your pastor actually able to teach? Do you walk away from those messages actually learning something? 
did you walk away with an understanding, a better understanding of the scriptures that they went over that you didn't have before? If the case is yes, then your pastor is gifted to teach. If not, then hmm, maybe it's time for a reevaluation. Characteristic number 10, and that is to be not addicted to wine. Now, I know we, we, we said we were going to talk about the alcohol again, and here it is specifically, not addicted to wine. Now, many questions get raised. Does this mean a pastor can never drink? Uh, you know, biblically, I don't know. I don't see it in there, but I want to give you my opinion, at least on it. If you are a pastor or a leader, or an elder of church, I would just stay away from it. I would stay away from it. Why? Because you need to be sober-minded. You need to stay vigilant and aware. And if you've had some drinks in your system, you are not that vigilant, aware type person anymore. You cannot effectively give the answers that people are searching for. I mean, just imagine if you were at your house, if your pastor's at his house, and he decided to drink a couple beers that night, and he's got a little bit tipsy, and then he gets a phone call from you in the congregation, and you had a question about a Bible verse. Now, in good conscience, hopefully he would not respond and try to talk about it because he is influenced under a different type of influence of alcohol or maybe even worse, a bad situation, something like uh, an abuse is going on or a death in the family. If you as a pastor, if your pastor had some drinks in their system, oh man, I would not be able to, in good conscience, address those topics while being under the influence of alcohol, even if it wasn't a drunken manner, if it was just tipsy or something like that. So that's why I personally say just stay away from it. I'm not going to once again claim that the Bible says that in exact words. It's just my opinion. Stay away from it so you can stay vigilant, sober-minded, and not addicted to wine. Uh, a little bit more on the alcohol thing. The, if you actually look up the meaning of the Greek word used there, it means one who sits long at his wine. So that person who's, I just picture the person at the bar and they got the drink. They've been there from sunup to sundown. You know, uh, That's what you don't want to be is addicted to wine. Not, not to mention that goes into whole other reasons. If your congregation sees a pastor out there drinking at a bar or pushing a cart around Walmart with a 24 pack in or something like that. And all of a sudden, oh boy, that orderly lifestyle that we talked about. Anyways, I don't want to get too long on that one. Number 11, because it's self-explanatory really, but number 11, pugnacious. Now here's a word we definitely don't use too often. And this means to be not a brawler or in other words, don't start fist fights, pastor. Uh, as a pastor, your pastor is going to have people who disagree with him. And if his first response is to punch them in the face, then he's probably not called to be a pastor. I'm just kind of picturing that in my head. Hey, pastor, I didn't like your sermon. Whack! You know? <laughs> I'm just kind of picturing that in my head. And that would be, while it's hilarious at first, it's actually truly sad because that would mean that pastor is not called to preach the word. Now, we can talk about self-defense and all this other stuff at a different time. Uh, but specifically, it just means not a brawler. And I would actually argue that this could get into that whole realm of not verbally being a brawler as well. That's a very hard one, especially when you start debating theology and these different things. That gets into a little bit of another topic. We'll, we'll get there here in a minute. So characteristic number 12, this is to be gentle. This literally means yielding. Uh, in pastoral application, I would say this means not holding grudges and forgiving, being considerate of others. I got to find my words today. Um, and honestly, they just give grace. 
uh, as a pastor, I mentioned it before, your pastor is going to be hounded by confrontations, people not agreeing with him. And as a pastor, you have to be, your pastor needs to be gentle. He needs to be yielding. Now, this doesn't mean that you yield when it comes to the truth. You do not compromise the truth. Your pastor should never compromise the truth for the sake of unity. Unity is good, but if it comes at the compromise of truth, mm, that's where you draw the line. I know a lot of people have a hard time with that. They want to, you know, have everyone get along and all this stuff. But at the end of the day, if it's not the truth, if it's not what's in the Bible, mm, you don't yield to that. Characteristic number 13 now. Peaceable. Peaceable. This is the exact opposite of pugnacious. It means to abstain from a fight. In other words, your pastor doesn't go looking for a fight. And this really hits on the physically. And yes, I truly believe it hits on the verbally as well. All you got to do is go on Facebook. Facebook. Oh my gosh. All you got to do is go on Facebook and join like an apologetics group or something like that. And see that there are so many pastors on there that are just constantly getting into theological fist fights over Facebook, which I think is one of the most fruitless things possible. Nobody ever has ever had their mind changed from Facebook conversations. But yet you see pastors and they put pastor right there on their on their Facebook profile name like they're all proud of it, starting fights, trying to start theological arguments. Now, there is a way. To, I'm, not, I'm not against debating. I love iron sharpens iron. I purposely have some friends that, that, are, that are, believe differently than me. We believe the same on salvation, but on these secondary and tertiary issues, we don't agree. And we love to iron sharpen iron moment and talk about it and go over it. But it nev- we never go into it looking for a fight. We don't go into it looking to belittle somebody and go, ha, ha, I'm so much better than you all smugly and whatnot. So number 13, peaceable. Number 14, they must be free from the love of money. This one's very self-explanatory. As a pastor, you don't you you need to be looking and this is this is very dangerous for today's world because as a pastor, it is very easy if especially if your church is very well financially blessed and you're in a big area and you have a lot of people in your congregation, your pastor is going to be under that temptation to live that lavish lifestyle. I mean, just Go look at all these different churches out there today. I'm going to call out Hillsong Church again. Every single one of their pastors that gets up there that I've ever seen on TV is wearing some $500 pair of shoes and, and $600 shirt or something crazy like that. If you, you ever want to go check that stuff out, check out this Instagram account called Preachers and Sneakers or something similar to that. Literally, a guy sits there and he'll look at all these popular pastors and preachers and whatnot, and he will look at the clothes and the shoes and everything that they're wearing and figure out what the exact cost of that stuff was. And it is mind-blowing. Pastors are, are spending my entire monthly paycheck on a pair of shoes. Like, that is crazy. I'm not going to say, uh, no, you know what? I'm not even going to go there. It's just wrong. That's not free of the love of money. You talk, if your pastor starts talking about, they, they give a 20-minute message about offering beforehand, and they specifically use those words like, if you give, God's going to bless you. So if you want to be financially blessed, just give and blah, 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 and all this stuff. Then, you know, the Jesse Duplantis and Kenneth Copeland type people, run. 
Just run from that because that's not free from the love of money. That's actually trying to self-indulge even more in the love of money. If your pastor is living in a, a mansion well above the average person's means and all this stuff, I'm now I'm not trying to say that a pastor needs to live some poor lifestyle and they're living in a tent right beside the church building and all this stuff. No, I'm not saying that. Actually, Paul says a pastor should be doubly blessed. A leader, an elder in the church should be doubly blessed. Because honestly, I truly believe as a pastor, this should be your full-time thing. I know some pastors out there, they get part-time jobs because they don't want to take from the congregation or maybe the congregation's small and it's not enough to make a living. But I do truly believe as a pastor, you should be so dedicated to that ministry and dedicated into your studies and preaching that message and giving that word and that teaching that you shouldn't have to worry about a, a, a secondary job. You should be able to live a respectable, it goes back to that, a respectable lifestyle at home. Now, once you start creeping above those, that average group and you're living in a very nice house, probably better than everyone else in your, in your congregation, you're driving a really nice car and all these other things, that's when that love of money is creeping in. This is, once again, self-explanatory, but sadly far often abused in a lot of pastors today. So look for, out for that. Your pastor has to be free from the love of money. Verse, or not verse number 15, but characteristic number 15. They have to manage their household well. And not only that, they have to have children who are submissive. And actually, if you go and read the parallel passage to this in Titus, Paul takes it up another notch and says the children have to be believers. Now, this can get into a whole nother long conversation, but this is what the Bible says. So I'm just going to leave it there at that because I'm still praying on that one and asking God for some more clarification in that area. But essentially, that's what it says, that your children must be believers if you go into Titus and read that. And the Greek word, I looked it up, I did my study, and it is the exact same word referring to believers everywhere else in the Bible. Plain, simple, and put, it's what the Bible says. Not only that, but managing your own household well, like we were talking about earlier. Now, remember I said that husband of one wife passage, that was not a passage talking about divorce. Well, if divorce does enter the conversation, then this is where it would lie uh, specifically because how can a husband manage, how could a pastor manage a church if he can't manage his own household, if his marriage is falling apart? Some will raise the question, what if a pastor gets a biblical divorce. That's something that the elders are going to have to talk about. Like when I say biblical divorce, you can go back and look at our episodes on what actually constitutes as a biblical divorce. We went very in depth on that. If your pastor gets a biblical divorce, does that disqualify him from the ministry? And that's something that the elders of the church have to come together and really decide upon because this is a this is a tough topic. Does that person getting a divorce, that pastor, even if it's biblical, constitute you having him having his household in good order, whatever the reason may be. I'm not going to say yes or no, but at the same time, it's definitely something that needs to be taken into consideration. Now, obviously, if it was an unbiblical divorce, that person is disqualified from being a pastor, period, done and over with. Here's another one, <laughs> getting on the divorce thing. Some congregations will actually not allow a pastor to pa well not allow someone to become a pastor if they have had a divorce prior to even conversion that i do not agree with if you once again it goes back to the anything that you have ever done 
in your past life before you became a Christian is not going to be held accountable for you when you go up to heaven. So why would it be that way if somebody is now called of God to preach his word, but some group of elders or congregation is holding his past sins before he was a Christian over his head? It just doesn't make any sense. But yes, once again, they have to have their household in good order and children need to be in submissiveness. I I think about the, I've, I've used this analogy before, but the whole if your pastor's pulling the kids out of the minivan, the wife's screaming and yelling at them, the kids are running around like crazy, pastor's yelling at them, you know, they're late to church or something like that. That, that, that doesn't look like your household's in good order. I mean, that's very realistic for many people in the congregation. I'm, you know, but as a pastor, you are held to a higher standard. That goes back with having your life well ordered and everything. So... Like we said, you got to manage that household well. Your pastor has to do that. Number 16, characteristic number 16, your pastor should not be a new convert. This should be self-explanatory. It, it, it's kind of like if I were to let my private, I'm in the army, you, it, most of you know that, it would be kind of like if I were to let my soldiers, my, you know, who just joined the army you know, a few months ago, go ahead, soldier, be the platoon sergeant, you're good. it's not going to work out too well. And I'm going to get in a lot of trouble. Uh, They're not going to know what to do. They're not going to know how to go about the day-to-day routine. Sure, they can learn over time, but that's not the way you do it because a lot of mistakes are going to be made along the way. This is why it's so important that you don't have a new... As, As a Christian, I truly believe that almost every single Christian at some point in their life, because they're so excited, especially that first, you know, few while, few years and everything that they get saved, they're on fire. They are on fire and they may be going in their head, maybe I'm called, maybe I should preach, maybe I should be preaching the word. And only to find out later on that, no, they weren't called to do that. They, they God had something else planned for them. Sadly, though, so many people do end up doing this and they'll go to school and they'll go to seminary only to find out that they don't meet these qualifications and they aren't called to actually preach the word. Uh, sad example here. Well, actually not a sad example. It was actually a good thing. Uh, I was recently helping out a youth group for a while. I was working with their youth pastor and there was a young man in there about 17, 18 years old, and he loved to study the word. You know, his father was a pastor. He was brought up very well in God and he just loved his Bible and a church actually, uh, not the church that we, we were, he was going to, but a different church wanted him to become the youth pastor for that church. And he was debating on whether or not to take it. So he came to me and he came to the youth pastor and talked about it. And obviously we told, we, we actually brought up First Timothy chapter 3 and went over it to him, especially in this part right here. And we, we talked to him about it and he ended up declining that job. One of the things we brought up to him was, oh my gosh, the temptation that is going to come your way. You are a 17, 18 year old, you know, good looking young man, and you are going to be in charge of other teenagers, teenage girls who are not far off in age from you. Are you going to be able to resist that temptation? That's just being thrown headfirst into temptation. (laughs) What does the Bible say about that? It says to run from temptation, flee from it, get away from it, not jump headfirst into it. And praise the Lord, he once again, like I said, he took the advice and he was not doing it. Now, he may very well be called to be a pastor someday, uh, but he had the right mind to go ahead and ask for good, sound biblical advice. He got it and he took it. So that's one of the big reasons, like I say, why not to be a new convert. Uh, I mean, even 
Paul's letter gets specifically in there is this can be an entrapment by the devil. You can fall into the snare of the devil for this and end up getting puffed up on your own brain or your own knowledge or anything like that. And you start running away from it. I, 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 so much danger in that. I, I can go on it for a while, but I think you get the point. All right. Last characteristic. Characteristic number 17, that a pastor must have a good reputation outside the church. Now, at first you might say like, well, what do we have to do with the rest of the world? Who cares about that? No, this isn't saying that the rest of the world has to agree with your message and agree with what you preach or even like you. What it is saying is they can't hold anything against you. It kind of goes back to that whole above reproach thing we were talking about. One of the ways that I like to measure this is look at your church. What are they doing in their outside community? How are they reaching people for Christ? Are they causing a ruckus and doing crazy things? Or are they sitting back doing absolutely nothing, being dead? Or are they going out? Are they doing the dirty work? Are they picking up food and uh, for the homeless and the poor in the area? Are they you know, picking up trash in the local park or doing something for the local municipalities, whatever the case may be? Are they ha- do they have that good reputation? Is that person, that pastor, does he have a good reputation outside the church? No one should be able to point to him and say, you are a hypocrite and you do not practice what you preach. I want to, let me give a little example of that. And I used him earlier, but Pastor John MacArthur, he pastors a church out in California, in LA County, one of the worst counties probably to pastor a church at because of just how liberal that place is and the hatred I'm sure that many of the lawmakers have for Christians. They just don't regard them or anything they care about in that area. But he has been pastoring in that church for a while there, and he has built such a reputation outside that church with the local municipalities, the police department, the fire department, all that stuff, that when they tried to shut down Governor Gavin Newsom, who's actually going through recall right now, (laughs) uh, when he tried to shut down that church because of the coronavirus restrictions, and the pastor John MacArthur said, absolutely not. We are going to gather to worship God. And I fully support that, by the way. That can get into a whole other debate, but I fully support that. We're supposed to gather. So he did what he felt the Holy Spirit was pressing on his heart, and he allowed the church to gather. And the state's coming with all these fines, trying to shut them down. And you know what the police department did? The police chief of L.A. County ended up coming up there and saying, welcome to the Grace Community Church peaceful protest. He called it a peaceful protest because that was at the time where, oh, if you go to protest, you know, obviously coronavirus restrictions don't matter anymore. So police chief called it a peaceful protest. Now, if you had a bad reputation outside the church, that obviously would not have happened. So that just goes to show you the importance of that good reputation. No, once again, it doesn't mean everyone's going to have to agree with your church or agree with your pastor or anything like that. But it does show that they can't look at them and say this is a bad, evil, wicked person and they are a hypocrite and they don't practice what they preach or whatever the case may be with that. Okay, so with all that being said, those were the 17 characteristics I was able to pull out. Once again, if I missed one or maybe you have some disagreements or anything like that, I am never above correction by all means. Go ahead, shoot me a comment, uh, hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or our email, and let me know. Let me know why you thought I was wrong on something. And please, if you can, like I said, just drop the scripture reference in there with it. It makes it so much easier when I'm trying to research that stuff. So anyways... Uh, Next week's episode is going to be on church deception, and I know that sounds like an evil topic. I'm just going to tell you straight off the bat right now, I truly believe most churches are not 
trying to deceive people for nefarious reasons. But nonetheless, there are churches that use very deceiving tactics when going about their, you know, altar calls or different things like that. And that's what we're going to be discussing during that next program. So y'all have a good one. Thank you for listening. If you stuck it out this far, I know this was once again a longer episode, but this is wrapping up pretty much episode number two on our church series, How to Find a Church Program. I'm Tim. I believe now what? Signing out.